Space is very political, and it's and it speaks very loudly. It tells you so much. I can t I can use design to tell you an awful lot about the material reality of the person or the people living within this world. Thank you for tuning in to this first episode of a new podcast called What Do Buildings Do All Day? It's hosted by me, Emmett Scanlon. It's a podcast about the matter of people in buildings and also some buildings that matter. The voice you heard before mine is of Molly O'Cahon. Molly is a production set and costume designer. Already well-known in theatre, Molly has now become known to a wider public. She's become a kind of lockdown legend because for well over 50 days she has been collaborating with her mother and father, restaging and representing great works of visual art and photography and sharing the new works they've made online with audiences around the world. I spoke with Molly back in early May and we talked about her newfound relationship with home, this collaboration with her parents and collaboration more generally in theatre. Molly recalled learning to take creative risks, enjoying messing up and about in Trinity College Dublin, what it's like to work in the building that houses the National Theatre in London, and how she believes that the actual rooms in which theatre is considered, worked out and tested, may well determine how theatre gets made, who gets to make it, and how it is received by audiences into the future. To start though, I asked Molly to tell me about her life at home, and if the nature and her understanding of home had changed since lockdown, and since she began collaborating with her parents on their new works of art. We're at a time with uh, in our lives, I suppose. You're you're in your home. I'm in my home, and there's a real uh, strong and intense focus on homes. We're spending a lot of time in them. They are places that we may or may not have already grown up in. They're places we've returned to. They're places which then obviously trigger kind of past associations and memories with who we were growing up and who we are now. And then our homes have also become offices and workshops and studios and schools and places of intense kind of production. So what's been happening to you with regard to your home and your understanding of home and place in, in the last couple of weeks? I think a lot of things have been evolving around this because I found myself in quite a peculiar situation where I packed up my home in Dublin eight months ago, moved to London, then came home for three days on a trip to do some work to design a theatre show and got stuck when the lockdown started in my parents' house, which I've never previously lived in. So I then ended up living behind the sofa in my parents' living room for six weeks and as of this week I've kicked my mum out of her little study box room and I'm now in my own room so which feels like a great victory I have a door I can close so in that sense for me I've been feeling quite uh, disconnected from home and but also thereby kind of meditating on what home is in many ways because there's been I currently feel I have so many homes that I'm sort of between all of them I have a sort of temporal home in London which is I moved to it's a flat I share with some friends and I never I love that home, but it's rented and I never envisage myself living there for more than at most a few years. And then in some ways, I feel like I've gotten stranded at home because Dublin as a city feels like my home, but not necessarily the house into which I'm now confined. And then to add another layer of weirdness, the flat that I think of as home in Dublin is currently where my brother is living. And I can't go there because his girlfriend is immunocompromised. And so they're self-isolating very fiercely. So the place in Ireland where I actually have my belongings and my kind of, those the, uh, I'm quite, a, I'm quite a sort of um, 
I guess, materialistic person, but I wouldn't say it in a sort of economic way. I just have a lot of um, relationships to objects. I like objects. I like beautiful, interesting, collected, generally old objects. And they're all packed away in a flat that's a 10 minute cycle away, but I can't go there. So the whole, that whole sort of, it's been quite a strange roller coaster of emotions to feeling like I'm in the wrong place, yet possibly the right place in terms of the safest place, but also not. It's a funny time because people are, I think, spending a lot of time in their home and they're changing their relationship to their home right now. They're being able to, those people who have the time, which obviously isn't everyone, it's very dependent on what your situation is with working from home with children or other distractions. But those who do have perhaps more time to spend at home than usual are investing time in repainting their skirting boards or growing their potatoes or, I don't know, whatever, and tending and nesting and minding their home because they can put all that focus inward. And I think it's, it feels strange to not be in a place where that makes sense. I've planted some flowers in my mum's garden, but I won't be here to see them flower. And, or hopefully I won't. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of, um, there's a strange transience to, to the home that I now find myself in. Yet you have managed to, to sort of make that home a, a site of intense production in a sense. You, you, you have been making uh, these incredible studies, these recreations of, of artworks with your mum and your dad over the last, uh, I think you're on day 44, 40, I mean, 42 today. 42 of these, yeah, which are these extraordinary um, collaborations, let's say. And I'm really interested in um, how they emerged in, 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 in your home life, um, what they're, you know, how they got started and, and what process has been involved in, in, in making these, these studies of the photographs. And then, as I said, collaborating with your, your mom and dad to, to become um, protagonists in these, these kind of adventures. They've been a really interesting exploration of this, this house as home and as a site and as arena for, I guess, performance or creation. They started very unambitiously. Um, we were bored one night. I thought we needed a distraction, something a bit cheery. I made, um, uh, so the first night I, I said, really just let's, I'd seen a, a, you know, the call outs that everyone has seen on Twitter and so on for, from the Dix Museum suggesting people recreate works of art. And I very quickly, in about two minutes, dressed them up as the couple from American Gothic, took a photo of them on my phone and put it on, on Instagram to, you know, the amusement of a few of my friends and didn't think much more about it. And then the day after, people had thought it was so funny and engaged with it. Friends of mine, again, very small scale. So I went, OK, let's keep going. Um, and that night I made Mexican food and we did a photo of um, Frida and Diego as sort of as a sort of themed night to try and find a way of marking different days. You have to create different projects or themes or um, so on. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I think we found an enjoyment in it and a focus in it. There's something about suddenly finding yourself living with your parents unexpectedly as an adult in a house that you haven't lived in before. There's all these kind of new and, and strange things that at the start felt quite turbulent and it all felt quite uncertain um, and I think there was something about having a quite frivolous but enjoyable project which we were all um, kind of equally invested in uh, as a and but also it's it's low on pressure it's escapism it's distraction it's not it, you know it isn't the same as me doing something that feels um, you know the work that I do as a as a professional as a designer which feels I mean I enjoy it but there's a pressure or there's a deadline or there's a there's a there's a sort of um, there's a professionalism, there's a standard I set, there's all these kind of things, whereas this doesn't particularly, at the start at least, it didn't feel like that. It was pure enjoyment. It was hobby. And there's something quite nice in that. 
Um, it also has meant that I've, like I said, I haven't lived in this house before. I've been here for like four days over Christmas, three days visiting and some dinners, but I've never lived here. So it has meant that I've gone through all the cupboards. I've investigated what's in every single drawer, cupboard, wardrobe, um, and figured out what we have here and what we could potentially use kind of on these strange sort of um, scavenger hunts I've been going on for form, basically, you know, looking at a restoration painting and going, okay, I need a sort of thing that looks a bit like this mad hat. And then just trying to go, okay, what in the world in this house might have that shape um, or that color? And then sort of compiling those into, into images. So, of course, what you guys are doing is you're, you're finding a, a painting or a photograph, which typically has a man and a woman in it already. And then you and your parents are, as you said, scavenging and figuring out how to reconstruct or reinterpret or represent that image in another way, um, which is, I mean, it's very interesting you say that you, you, you've been, let's say, re or finding for the first time some components or parts of your house. But I imagine after so many days of it, it's also an interesting process with with your parents, right? I mean, they're they're collaborating in this. They're not, they're willing participants. They're obviously. I've heard you speak before about your your Swedish heritage and your heritage in literature, and and that this must be influencing your 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 kind of time in this home with them and how the work is 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 emerging, which you know maybe is influencing a little bit how you're thinking about collaboration or how things work. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a it's a strong collaboration between my, myself and my two parents who have very different skill sets as well. My mum is an artist, a textile artist primarily, hence the incredible amount of textiles in this house that I can rob to make, um, to recreate weird bits of paintings with. Um, and my dad has a sort of, he's worked in business most of his life, but is now a scholar of Irish and um, is a great lov lover of history and literature as well as art. So, and he's got an incredible eye for detail. He's very exacting. And my mum is quite good at sort of more, bold shapes and going you know so between the three of us we have quite a quite an interesting collaborative exchange on how to how to recreate each thing and how to go about that uh, I guess I sort of I, I sort of spearhead it but they definitely are there's a there's a team there and an unusual collaboration in some ways because I don't have a reason to collaborate with both of my parents on that many things other than I don't know perhaps cooking a dinner or something and to be honest I'd rather cook on my own there's a sort of like it's I don't know it's um to have a short focused project that you collaborate on with your parents is quite unusual. And I, I miss collaboration. That's my kind of primary mode of working is, is a collaborative one. I work in theater and I love theater because it is so um, intrinsically collaborative and it's collaborative across a really broad range of skill sets. And yet all those people still end up in the same room at some point, which I really enjoy. And I miss when I've done little bits of work in other industries where even though it's still a creative industry and you use similar skills because it, the scale is bigger, like for example, in film or television, if you go and work in an art department, you're most likely to go and work with 20 other people also working in an art department because that's the scale that you're working at. So primarily your communications will be with other people doing a similar job to yourself, which can be very, um, you, you can learn a lot from that and it can be rewarding in other ways. But there is something about the, fact that in theatre at some point you get people who can act, people who are really literarily minded, people who are musicians or fantastic at thinkers who think primarily through sound, people who think through all these different mediums as well as technical people, logistical people, communications people and they all 
generally they meet once a week and you have a production meeting and you try and figure out how you're going to tell the story or present the images that you're trying to present on stage. And I think that level of collaboration is what excites me most about theatre. You didn't, you didn't start in design, isn't that right? You didn't start as a production designer. You didn't study that. You, you started elsewhere in theatre. I sort of did. I started designing for theatre when I was a like when I was a teenager, I mean, designing for theatre sounds ambitious. I started like making props and sorting out the costumes for school plays. I found that to be really rewarding. And I liked that nobody else wanted to do it. Everyone else wanted to be in the plays. And I wanted to make them look interesting. And I was good at it. And that just gave me a sense of, um, I think, purpose in school and worth in school when I otherwise felt quite left out and excluded and not sort of, not not part of the, part of the gang. Um, and then... I took a break from that and studied photography for a year in Sweden. I just felt like I needed to leave Ireland for a bit after secondary school. I found it all a bit much. But then I came back and I went to Trinity and studied drama. So I didn't do a design degree or an art degree, which I sometimes think was the right move and sometimes was the wrong move. I guess you'll always wonder. But what I did love about doing my academic degree in, um, I started doing English and drama in Trinity and then discovered that I couldn't focus in English I wasn't it was too lonely I needed to have a point where you got into a room and rolled around on the floor or debated something very heatedly or went into a theatre and tried something out in space with other people I found that a much better way to learn for me so but what I think what was good about it was that by doing this degree which in some ways makes you a jack of all trades and a master of none and that you do a sort of hodgepodge assemblage of bits of um, literary study, philosophy, art history, kind of general sort of critical theory and modes of thinking, as well as some more practical theatrical skills to do with directing, designing, lighting, design, devising, um, and other kind of hodgepodge of academic courses, lots of gender theory, that you end up with these group year groups of students who have really different interests. And so you end up in a year full of people where you spend your time with actors, writers, and or aspiring actors, writers, directors, technicians, and people who have actually realized that they want to go and become an English teacher after this, or they want to go and work in communications and they hate theater. And by doing that, you get more opportunity to form effectively what can become small companies because you're not training with 10 other people who do the same thing you do. So, you know, the other course in Ireland that I could have done when I left school would have been to go to IADT and study stage and screen design which probably would have given me a more focused skill set directly related to the area that I ended up and I kind of always wanted to work in, but it would have given me far less opportunity to actually try things out because in Trinity, I had access to both Players Theatre and the Beckett Theatre to kind of do whatever I wanted with because there mm. were so few of us who wanted to design and so many people who wanted to direct and act that I had very little um I, I didn't I couldn't do any technical drawings I've never built a model but I had two black box theaters to just try things in and that okay. has been quite exciting so you're like working one is to one at that time build it, <laughs> building in the building building it in 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 space in order to understand how something might be completely yeah one is to one is exactly how it worked and I think treating particularly in players treating everything a little bit like it's a white card model you know everything is just sort of a draft it's all yeah. just an evolution and um, it's, a, it's all held together by a hope and a wish and a prayer but it's also it's fast it's immediate it's exciting to work that way there's you know the, you, you, you do 300 euros feels like all the money in the world and there you know everyone's just there because they want to be and you'd show up at 10 a.m on a Sunday morning with the plan to build a set in a day and generally, to some extent, it would work. 
and you would figure it out as you went along. It's also quite an unusual space, Players Theatre, because it's entirely student run. There are no, shall we say, adults there. There's no one supervising. There are no real rules. It's, it's, it's a self-regulating student society. So there are, there's a committee of 12 people in charge, two of whom are technically responsible for the place in terms of the technical know-how. And that is a knowledge passed down intergenerationally within the student body alone. And they are the only supervising. It's a huge responsibility to put on very young students who often don't have experience or any training. But at the same time, it allows for a very, yeah, it, it creates a, basically a one-to-one model box where you can just try things out. And also, um, I imagine, it gives you an opportunity, I suppose, to, to, to deal with risk in, in what is, if not explicitly, probably behind the scenes, a supported environment, right? You're still part of university, so if things go completely crazy, somebody will help you. But you guys, presumably at that time, learned how to take a risk and the value of taking a risk, what you learned from doing that, enjoyed failure as much as success and were kind of this spirit which seems to me to be a quite strong in in my interaction with theater this this in it togetherness that if 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 it goes slightly haywire somebody can help you figure it out but also everyone is determined to do their best for each piece that they're doing so Mm. risk risk is important right risk is definitely important and i think it's established really well in that quite ad hoc environment there is almost an attitude that like 80 percent of what we did would fail and that would be fine. And it also meant that if you managed to do something that didn't fail, you got such joyful, immediate reactionary praise for it. You know, people were really surprised at it not having failed. And so it was quite sort of rewarding in that sense. And I think it does feed into, particularly in the Irish industry, this, yeah, a very supportive environment where you um, risk is encouraged and supported. And I think that is partially because our training structures, and I'm, I'm all for, you know, brilliant, better training and the establishment of the Lear has, has really changed how this works. But there has been a long tradition in Ireland of most of the training happening either on jobs or in places such as Trinity where you've got these, there are less rules, there are less structures and people are sort of thrown together and try to figure it out. And that creates work, which I think can be more collaborative because people aren't so concerned with staying in their lane or only doing their job there's also less of an and and i think it's less accepted in the in ireland that people will well within theater i think people expect collaboration at a higher degree to some extent i think from my experience in the uk it's quite slightly more compartmentalized people are doing more the budgets are bigger things are happening faster and so you need to be able to deliver your design, hand it over and then walk away and walk onto the next project. And so you won't be available for this ongoing collaboration necessarily. I mean, I'm generalizing, there's lots of people that don't work that way, but uh, I think that Ireland and Irish theatre is scrappy at times, but that serves it. Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always that line, isn't it, between the things that, that liberate and, and kind of produce or uh, enable people to be creative or often the things that also can trap or, or disable other aspects of, of what the practice is. I mean, um, it occurs to me because we overlapped a little bit um, on the This Is Pop Baby Festival back in March, um, 13th of March was our last time, the, where we live in the Project Art Centre. And um, I suppose since then, I've been thinking quite a lot about the, uh, about the way theatre, in my experience of it anyway, which is very limited, let's say, compared to, to most people who work in theatre, obviously, because I'm an architect by training and that's the primary part of my practice 
but it's very interesting to compare create creative practice and creative experiences of things across art forms and i've been very lucky to do that and this thing of risk has been really um intriguing to me because i think in architecture the the risk is problematic now and it maybe speaks a little bit to what you're talking about in terms of professionalization is the wrong word but kind of limits that are placed on disciplines that that sort of start out with good intentions and eventually trap trap them um, within architecture because obviously making a building is really serious and it can be really dangerous uh, if things go wrong and people like myself and other architects do lie awake worrying that bad things are going to happen and i think you know then that 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 the regulation and the full powers of the law would be brought down upon us if things go wrong. And then what's this This has started to do, I think, in architecture, because we have such an aversion to risk, generally as a society has put us in camps. So what I do as an architect has to be really clearly defined, clearly stated. I can't step outside of my lane, as you call it. I can't step outside of my boundary because to do so is is dangerous and, and, and risky. Um, so I know, while I know the kind of conditions in theatre are not ideal, and, you know, it can be quite insecure for people involved, the energy that comes from this really uh, clearly defined role that everybody has, you know, if you're working in lighting or production design or acting or directing or costume, uh, but yet nothing really can ever occur without each other. You know, you cannot put on a show, you cannot have an audience in a room unless all those things come together. And one one kind of part of that chain that's weak can compromise an entire production. So it's a really extraordinary level of um, support, I think, in that room for people to to take risks, to do their best and to, uh, to you know, to really pursue a, a project with, with real endeavor. Um, how do you... I mean, how do you think you can protect that in your in your work? Because you you again you're constructing as a production designer, a set designer, you're obviously constructing large pieces of infrastructure that go into a venue for some period of time. Do you want to talk a little bit about that kind of process and how you how you um, yeah absolutely put forward ideas and come back from them and and continue to push forward with the with mm-hmm. the level of ambition you have? I mean, I think the first thing about theatre that I always come back to is kind of what you touch on there. It's the people. And the people that you work with and to to a great extent obviously there are always going to be exceptions but i think people often talk about how you know no one works in theater for any reason other than that they love it if you are you're daft because it doesn't make any sense it's you know it's badly paid it's unstable we never know what the future is we never know we can't plan more than six to eight to ten months in advance ever and it's it can be, um, you know, fearsomely scary at times, particularly as people get older and try to build more stable lives. It can be really, really difficult. And yet we continue and we persevere, primarily, I think, because we, because we love it for the most part. And, and I think that comes down to, and that means that there's this weird distillation of people that who you are left with almost entirely are people who love collaboration, who want to work together with people from other disciplines and who want to be there. And that creates these chains of, a very positive exchange between disciplines which allow you to take greater risks and to propel forward in in kind of exciting ways but also makes it very apparent then when there are if there's a a link in that chain that falters if there's someone who doesn't want to be there or someone who doesn't really care or who you know who's maybe just lost their you know people that at times they lose their we all go through ups and downs of theatre and you lose your love for it for a bit because it is, it's a, it's a cruel task mistress. It can be a hard industry to work in, but that can make things very difficult at times. And I think in terms of the logistics that you talk about, like, yeah, at times you do build big hulking bits of infrastructure and you have to hope that they're not going to kill anyone. Not as much as maybe building a, a building, but still, um, you know, when you build a second story on a stage and you really want to know that you're not going to, you're not going to accidentally cause some awful accident. And for that, the relationship for me that is kind of most, 
I suppose the two relationships for me that are most key in theatre is my relationship with the director or the creator, perhaps, depending on what art form it is. And that's the artistic, the vision, so on and so forth. And we can come back to that. And then the other one, the practical one, is the production manager. And the production manager is the most important person for me in terms of how a thing will work. And they are some of the most fantastic people working in Irish theatre. They're just the most, you know, the brilliant ones are just so brilliant. And what's really difficult sometimes is that people who have that skill set, who are fantastic at taking vision and understanding how to sort of support the art while making it practical and and constantly treading the tightrope between not being at enabling the art but also being fiercely practical and, and holding the the bottom line on budget and on safety and on feasibility and logistics it's such a difficult tightrope to tread and to walk and they so frequently get attacked from both sides the other thing is that the people that have those skill sets are incredibly valuable members of the workforce in society and they um, have a skill set which is really really applicable to lots of other industries and so of course if we can't provide them with the longevity, the career prospects, the securities that they need, then it becomes a very unsustainable industry. And so we don't have that many of them. There are some brilliant ones and they're never out of work, but there isn't that many because it's very hard to keep them in the industry. And that is the most difficult thing because if they're not there or if they are overstretched because they're underpaid and they're so so on and so forth then that's when it becomes really hard to do the kind of work that you're discussing the kind of collaboration and to take the risks that that we want the um art of live performance to take because they need to be there and to be completely ready to 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 to, to, i feel yeah to walk the tightrope that's the best way to describe it i suppose in terms of process process starts with normally a text, a script, sometimes something else, sometimes it's a piece of music, an opera or a piece of dance or whatever, but I primarily work with text or idea. And normally for me, the collaboration is with the director. And if it's a sort of, if there's a script, if it's a more classical play where there's something on that's typed up into a PDF and sent to you, you read it and you read it like a, you know, it's sort of forensic. You read it over and over again and you, the first time you just read it for mood and the second time you read it with a spreadsheet and you start making notes about and, and scripts are so different these days you know sometimes you have to sit there and go okay there's a logic to this there's a sink beside a door which has to relate to that and the proximity of this to that has you know there's sometimes it's that kind of um reaction where whoever has written it has either mapped a journey for people and you're trying to figure out what what the space they envisaged was or they've written something which actually is impossible and doesn't transpose you know you can't physically be beside the door and the other door and the sink at the same time without this being a room that doesn't actually work. Sometimes that happens and you realise after ages of trying to figure out what they've imagined that they've imagined something impossible. But it can start very forensically like that or it can start very... And then if it is a forensic one, I would start with that and then I kind of park that and go, okay, that's the practical information. But now let's go back to, I suppose, what the what the vision is, what, the, what you want the space to say. I think space can be very, space is very political and, it's, and it speaks very loudly. It tells you so much. I can, t- I can use design to tell you an awful lot about the material reality of the person or the people living within this world and also about how we want the audience to frame it. So there's sort of two things. You can look at the, you know, how do you want the audience to view this world? Do you want them to feel entirely immersed in it? Or do you want them to feel a sense of remove from it? Do you want it to feel like a split screen? Should it feel cinematic? Should they feel really involved? Or should they feel like they're very um, 
sort of voyeuristic. So you, I suppose you think about the framing and the relationship that you want the audience to feel to what's going on on stage. And then you think about the um, material reality that you want to kind of communicate and then the practicalities that have to be supported. And different plays will have different demands on which one has to take priority. Hmm. I mean, again, in, in some of your work, like in the You Made a Stage, um, a production design and costume design as well for the Playboy of the Western World last mm-hmm. autumn, which was in Dublin and Belfast. And I saw that at the time. And I mean, what I find extraordinary, again, coming from my training as a designer to, to your world as a designer, is that you guys simultaneously have to think about both what we would term in architecture, the production and the consumption of the thing. So you have to mm. project this world of, of it has to have this, as you say, this character, this built thing, you know, you in that play, you you were building at least three rooms at the, on the same set that were one, you know, fantastically hovering over that was really arresting when you walked in. But then you're also describing the appropriation of that, the use of that, the occupancy of that by human beings, not just for the kind of two hours you're in the theatre, but over, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so this is this extraordinary, um, from a design point of view, this extraordinary concertina-like effect of, of um, both projecting forward and imagining a world, but then also having to deal with the, the how that reality, reality is um, occupied and used by by people in the in the script or whatever. And that that's really fantastic. I mean, how did you approach how did you approach those kinds of things in in that set, which seemed to be simultaneously to me anyway quite abstract mm. and conceptual in a way, and how it was particularly that that a window as it told, which just sometimes looked like you were framing these amazing Renaissance paintings, that amazing scene where he's lying the actor is lying at the, on the floor with, you know in the play and then then you also have activity of, of life portrayed and and history mm. all these triggers of memory all these things you're starting to reference from your own world you're trying to you know as you said at the very start of this discussion how you're forming relationships with objects in space and you have to mm. do that straight away and that's that doesn't really happen in architecture in the same way yeah i mean i loved designing that set i found the the appeal for me, the option to sort of look into Ireland, but to be able to take from what I wanted from Ireland without having to be faithful. I worked with Una Murphy um, as the director on that production. And Una is someone who I frequently collaborate with and really, really enjoy collaborating with. We have a very um, strongly developed sense of, I think, shorthand now. And we share quite a lot of both artistic aesthetic um, taste, but also political viewpoint. And so we started going, this is a very... This is a, a, a really fantastic but sort of weighty Irish canonical text. And we want to find a way to not deconstruct it, not pull it apart, not try to re but we do want to restage it into, we want to sort of transpose it into somewhere where we think it feels more urgent, more immediate, gives us something new about it. And we also wanted to examine the gender politics of it. And, you know, who is the protagonist of this narrative? Who do we sympathize with? Who's, whose perspective is it from? Because it's so famously the playboy of the Western world and it's all his story and his plot and you know playboy comes to town and wrecks havoc and then leaves and that's kind of the arc of it and I have trying to figure out the how that we not only use the Una's kind of skill set as a director and as a and, and dramaturgy but also physical space to examine the interior world of Peggy and the sort of the, the other character the other protagonist in this which is the woman who was always in this space, who was stuck, who was really grounded in a sort of stasis and who um, she's there at the very start and she's still there at the end. And that's that kind of, um, that was the starting point for us. 
was trying to marry that artistic vision with then all the very practical requirements of the play because we were still performing the text exactly as Singh wrote it. There was no changes there. So we needed to make sure that we could, you know, all the bar business and who picks up what and stands where. And if you pick up that and try and, and there's a lot of fighting in that play, there's a lot of choreography. So you need to try and make sure that you've got your, your doors and your counters and your tables in a, in a workable place. And I think the trying to find a way well, firstly, we wanted to set it in an Ireland. It's a co-production between the Lyric in Belfast and um, the Gaiety, or Dublin Theatre Festival in Dublin to be presented in the Gaiety Theatre. So two very different spaces, a very contemporary theatre and a very Victorian sort of chocolate box theatre. And then also um, from two sides of the, um, the border. So trying to find a place and then pulling it through history rather than setting it in you know, over a hundred years ago to set it somewhere vaguely around 80s or 90s Ireland. So it's an island which is desolate, but also one that we can remember and that we all have a relationship to the material culture of. That felt really exciting to me. So a lot of the research we did was around rural Ireland and what that looks like, but also um, sort of modernist Ireland and looking at, and particularly flat roof pubs, which are primarily a thing in the UK rather than in Ireland. So looking at post-war pubs I looked at so many post-war pubs I fell down an absolute rabbit hole and loved it um and what that looks like which is something now which it's, it's a look now which we know to be it is considered dated and frequently kind of I mean I think now it has come around again and is very much in in vogue but that there's a the sort of the, the brutal lines of pubs and council estates in rural Wales or um, the outskirts of Liverpool are not something which we necessarily typically think of as beautiful, probably more as intimidating. I think our interest in theatre and obsession in theatre with the past is really interesting, sort of period dramas, as you might call them, or things that are set in the past and what that is, because, you know, as we know, we have an incredible film industry, particularly in Ireland, but across the world, that makes super high quality, super high content, super detailed period dramas. In different ways, some of the are, you know, like um, the favourite or the film um, version of Emma that came out recently that are very contemporary and knowing and self-aware. And some of them are perfect reenactments. But film is doing that and it's doing that really well. And in theatre, I will never have the budgets nor the relationship between audience and stage to do that. So it's about, it's different. It's about like curating the objects from the past that you want as triggers. But for me, I always want everyone to, I'm not trying to pretend that we're not in 2019 in Dublin watching this. And I think that relationship between the um, the like the fact that the audience is contemporary and what's happening on the stage is a snapshot of something set somewhere else, but we're not asking for a remove of that. You know, there was loads of LED tape in light boxes in that set, and I think mm. that's important because that says to me, you know, this is it's. I, I like using strong framing devices in in design. I think it's it somehow appeals to our very. Um, I guess to our sort of the way our brains have been trained over the last while with cinema and TV, we're quite used to being told what to look at. And in theatre, you aren't. You can look wherever you want. You can look at the lights if you don't want to watch the stage or you can watch the person over there who's just sitting doing nothing because the big scene is happening over there. It's up to you what you want to look at. And I think then having, a, having strong framing devices where you can at times go, yeah, you can look where you want, but I'm going to give you a strong prompt to look at this because this is going to be interesting or beautiful or strong or, or needs emphasis is interesting. Yeah. You mentioned there the, the fact that the audience is in 2019 or 2020 or, you know, they're, they're, they are 
their presence in in their time and they arrive into into your world or the world of theater with all of that stuff that's going on and you know they've just come from work or they're late or they're meeting their friends or whatever and so you arrive into the theater and then before you get there obviously you have rather than theater design you have the design of the theater which in very many cases can be an extraordinary collaborator in that level of preparation that's needed i think it's like this amazing spatial foot bath before you go for a swim in theater or something and you mentioned the lyric which i think as an architect i think is extraordinary but as as a theater goer or someone who's kind of drives up there to go to the theater it, it it's very sophisticated in that level of preparation for getting to your seat and then being ready for what you guys have to offer mm. and so too perhaps is the is the national theater in london where i know you have been literally behind the scenes you've been you've been working there as a production assistant for some time and again that's an extraordinary front of house where mm. the building is so civic and you mentioned period drama i mean when i'm there i always feel like i'm in some sort of period drama where i'm going to persist down the staircase in a very you know elegant dramatic way because that's what the building asks of you it asks you to <laughs> account for yourself and step up and be a good a good citizen and, and make an effort um, so by the time you get to the theatre, you feel you're, you feel you're special already. But what's it like to work in that building? And what do you, what what do you think of it? And how do you feel about it? And you know, when you're hanging around and, and making great work there. I mean, I started there in September, and it's been a complete privilege, I think, to get to spend time in that building. It is sort of um, you know, it's a playground of infinite possibilities in many ways. It is within the kind of English speaking world. It's it's a a bastion of, I suppose, perceived. I mean excellence would be disputed because everyone has a different idea of what it is and it's contentious to be a national theatre everyone thinks you should be doing something else but in terms of material um reality and ability they can do most things you know they, they of course the budgets still have bottom lines and things still go you know everyone will always push to the limits of the available uh, resources but for the most part they can try anything achieve most things they build at an incredibly high spec and they have the time and the space and the resource to take risks in quite a different way to what we're talking about before which is the small-scale scrappy risks this is the high-end risks and there's also something about the fact that the national is it's the biggest factory in central london everything happens on site so there's this huge building on the south bank and almost everything that you see on the stage in any production is entirely fabricated on site and that is very unusual these days. Most things are fabric. Most most theatres have closed down. If they had them, their scenic shops and their anything you know other departments, and they've outsourced that to somewhere else. And it generally happens somewhere far away and off site, and it and it encourages disconnect between the the maker and the viewer, I suppose, and and the people along the way that are those collaborators. And what happens in the national is that you've got this huge building, which is the way it's built front of house and back of house there's a huge sort of flow of work and the particularly back of house because there's I think there's 1,600 people who work in the national it's ginormous but the way that I walk to the studio that I work in I walk over I walk along a thing called the high level walkway and I walk over all of the workshops so in your journey around the building on any given day no matter what you're doing if you're working in accounts or you know it doesn't matter what department you're working in you are interacting and seeing particularly the shows as they're being made, as they're being built and constructed, um, rather than... And then there's also the fact that it's it's a really specifically made, purpose-built theatre. It's the back of house, kind of the heart of it in some ways, is a thing called Drum Road, which is basically like a small um, 
it's a road. It's a road that runs the length of two sides of the theatre. It's, it's long and it connects all the workshops with all the rehearsal rooms and all the theatres, which means that you can then have this way, ability to move scenery and rehearsal props and things you need from workshop to paint frame where it gets painted and treated via props where they might add something to it and then into rehearsal rooms and then into and the side stage where it's stored and then onto the stage and that journey has a free flow about it which allows for a um a development of work that again is very unusual and an exchange things can move back and forwards from rehearsal room back to workshop back to rehearsal room to stage which i think is really gives a really particular flow to the building it feels very purpose-built for its structure and for the um allowing the workshops in the building to do the fantastic work that they are there to do. And of course, you also, I mean, not only are you a designer for hire, let's say, um, but you also have a production company, mm-hmm. Malaprop Theatre, which is, I, mm-hmm. I guess, based in Dublin. Yeah? With lots but, of UK members, um, yes, as in we're all a bit spread. <laughs> lots of, yeah, you're, I mean, you're, in, you're, you're global, you're international, uh, international profile. But the, but the um, what's the difference there? I mean, in terms of how you might approach the work and and, you know, maybe to continue this idea of the rooms mm. that you work in um, and, and the places in which work theatre gets constructed and how you find place. You know, I'm, I'm going back to your Trinity days, this, this, this offer of the university, which seems extraordinary to give you rooms to mess about in, in the best sense, you know, to, to, to go crazy in and to, as we said, talk, you know, to make, take risks. Are those kind, you know, if you're in a production company and you, you guys all want to get together and figure out how to put on something from scratch, write it, design it, stage mm-hmm. it, you know, all of light it, all of those things. How, how does that work or how is that possible or is it possible? It's really difficult currently. Space is really contentious. Um, space is very hard to get hold of in Dublin currently for rehearsals. It's very hard to afford. There's, and what's there is also because it's limited, it's therefore quite restricted. The access may be restricted or the um, a lot of spaces that you can get your hands on, you can only get your hands on during daytime hours. So it's very difficult to build set. So when I work with Malaprop, we start with ideas and we're a devising company, which I suppose means that we work very collaboratively and that we don't necessarily start with a finished script that we then rehearse and perform. We rather start with pieces of text, but also pieces of research and perhaps pieces of movement or something else or images. And we sort of combine them all into a pressure cooker and fling stuff at the wall and see what and see what sticks and then from that, we then extract more and more script and our writer, Dylan Coben Gray, develops it further in relationship and correspondence with myself as the designer, John as our sort of technician and lighting designer, Claire as the director and sort of overseer of the stitching of it all together, and then our performers and any other kind of um, collaborators that we have uh, invited in for that process in particular. And trying to find the space to work in is it's really difficult because we that company um, emerged out of working together in Trinity. We did one show in Trinity for Claire's final year project. It was called Love Plus. It was about the possibility of having a romantic relationship with a robot. And we made it exactly in one of those rooms, a sort of a small leaky room called 192 down the back of Trinity campus. I'm not sure if they're still, I think they're still there. And we rehearsed that and pieced it together. And then people quite liked it. We put it into the Fringe Festival we won an award at Fringe, which meant that we were going to be commissioned to make a new piece. And at that point, we decided that we should probably form a company and that we actually quite liked working together. And this is quite effective. And that we, across our disciplines, this, the, that we had 
um, a really broad range of skills, which meant that we could continue to work together quite effectively on the very limited resources available for young companies in Ireland at the time, because the arts funding for Irish theatre currently is incredibly low, very hard to get your hands on. Um, and particularly for small and mid-scale companies, there was um, cuts back post sort of recession that effectively annihilated all of the small and mid-scale companies overnight and reduced the number of operating theatre companies in Ireland to less than a quarter of what it had been in a single year. And so we're still reeling from that and struggling in, in, that, in that kind of circumstance. And it, it's really strange because it's meant that we've had this really odd profile where we have toured our work to um, four cities in Australia and Beijing and Paris and Edinburgh and London, and we still haven't been to Cork. There's a really odd way that funding is working currently where it's easier for us to present work internationally than it is for us to present work nationally as a young Irish company who make all of our work here and generally make work which feels quite Irish and is in Paris in relation to Ireland and um, contemporary Ireland particularly. And we still find that a lot of the time we end up back in Trinity. We get in contact and see if they can spare some space for us somewhere and um, particularly in the university holidays or um, when there are, for whatever reason, when the university is no longer using its spaces. Um, and that has, Players Theatre has been where we've rehearsed a lot of our shows because while we have used other rehearsal spaces and there are lots of studios, you know, there's Dance House in the lab on Foley Street, there's the Fringe Lab on Meeting House Square. There are normally spaces that you can get for limited amounts of time and you can't rig anything there. So Players Theatre is an a black box there's bar there's a grid above so you can rig things you can set up some lights so when we want to trial things that have to do with av sound lighting when we want to trial things that require dark when we need to build a set when we want to try and play in the conditions that are most akin to the conditions in which we will present the work we have very few options no affordable options other than players if we can find a way to get to ask often we've bartered our way back in so we've asked to you know can we exchange workshops or support to the student society for um space and when they're not using it and that is a real thing which i think as theater moves forward we're going to have to think about the space in which we create it a lot more because theater is no longer and, the, and design for theater you know once upon a time it was generally emulated architecture it, it was what you know what we call flats so just sort of four by eights of plywood and canvas and they'd be marked up with, with you know the placeholder for them in the rehearsal room would be sellotape on the floor or sort of um you know electrical tape in different colors on the floor to say this bit is two meters high this bit is one meters high there are steps here and a door here and that was that is workable to some degree if you are rehearsing um a show with where people behave quite naturalistically and it is walls and some bits of furniture but the way that theatre and also interdisciplinary work now is being created with involvement from dance, from very image-based work and, and other disciplines, it, it isn't really enough anymore to not be able to play with the material reality of what you will be presenting in the rehearsal space. And um, I think there's a huge need for developing spaces where we can do that kind of experimental work. We basically need, you know, four small studios somewhere with access to dark and access to fixed rigging points overhead um, and some electricity that we can use to turn on some lights. I mean, it's, it isn't a huge ask and, and an ability to load things in and out. Ideally, it shouldn't be on the fourth floor. 
Um, but in Ireland right now, it, that is a huge ask and that is not available. Um, and it would really change how interdisciplinary, design-led, image-driven theatre and dance and other live performances are created if we could find a way to nurture that, I think. I'm pretty sure this won't be the only time we'll hear that the size of the rooms we use can limit the things we do in them. Small rooms build small minds, I was once told, and it makes sense. Before the arts venue Visual was built in Carlow with its cavernous galleries, it was impossible for artists to show large-scale work in Ireland, so they never actually made much of it. In the next episode, we'll talk to two architects who also have an interesting collaborative practice and who, in their own words, think a building is just the beginning of something. Thanks for listening, and I hope you stick around as we improve Zoom sound, and hopefully we'll do some real interviews in rooms soon. The music is by Rachel Lavelle, Thanks to Donald Fallon of Three Castles Burning for his thumbs up and to Lawrence Lord, who's always at the end of WhatsApp. Stay safe and see you Wednesday for another episode on What Do Buildings Do All Day?